Section 42 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Case Studies, Chapter 8, Part 2. Renewed Interest in Total Body Irradiation In 1949, the Atomic Energy Commission, AEC, and the Defense Department planners were seeking information on the human effects of a nuclear reactor-powered airplane. The proponents of the so-called NEPA NEPA project, which at the time was managed out of Oak Ridge by the Fairchild Engine and Airplane Corporation on behalf of the Air Force and the AEC, needed to know how much external radiation air crews could tolerate. This question was critical because, depending upon the answer, the shielding needed to separate the crew from the aircraft's nuclear reactor might render the project impractical. Those involved with the NEPA project were primarily interested in the acute effects of total body exposure over a relatively short time, although they were also concerned about long-term effects of radiation on longevity and reproduction. It was anticipated that NEPA pilots would be exposed to as much as 25 rentgens in the course of a 24-hour flight. How would this amount of radiation affect the crew's abilities to fly the plane and perform their tactical military function? How many such missions could a crew endure before being incapacitated for flight duty, as well as facing a significant risk of developing a life-shortening disease? In early 1949, the NEPA Medical Advisory Committee was created to research the questions noted above and to advise on the project. Dr. Andrew Dowdy of UCLA was the chairman. Dr. Robert Stone was chosen to head a human experiment committee. At an April 3, 1949 meeting, Stone proposed to the full committee a program of experimentation using total body irradiation on healthy subjects. In defense of this proposal, Stone noted that experimentation with normal human subjects had been done in the past when there was no other way to obtain necessary data. At the same time, however, Stone discounted the value of the TBI research that had been performed on sick patients. As Brigadier General James P. Cooney, representing the AEC's Division of Military Applications, put it, we have lots of cases of whole-body radiation treatments, but all of them in patients, and we have no controls, and we don't have anything we can put our finger on. Most of this work was unsatisfactory because the data was poor. However, Shields Warren was not persuaded that experiments on healthy men would provide any more useful information, and was concerned about the long-term health consequences. Warren noted that, it was not very long since we got through trying Germans for doing exactly the same thing. Nonetheless, General Cooney argued that even if the data would not be statistically valid, psychologically it would make a lot of difference to the soldier if we were able to tell him that various doses of total body irradiation 
were given to a group of people, and here are the effects that were discerned. As we have seen in earlier chapters, the question of medical ethics was considered by the NIPA discussants. Stone urged that the committee approve TBI human experimentation in accordance with three basic principles of the 1946 American Medical Association Judicial Council. One, the voluntary consent of the person on whom the experiment is to be performed must be obtained. Two, the danger of each experiment must have been previously investigated by animal experimentation. And three, the experiment must be performed under proper medical protection and management. Shields Warren added that the experiments should be unclassified, so that there would be no suspicion that anything is being hidden or covered up, that it is all being done openly and straightforwardly. MIT's Robley Evans responded that we don't have to advertise it, but at the same time it doesn't have to be concealed, as Dr. Shields Warren has said. Dr. Heimer Friedel raised the question of whether decisions on these issues could be made by doctors alone. I am just wondering whether someone else ought not to hold the bag along with us with regard to making such a recommendation. Previously, in medical experiments, the physicians and doctors have made such recommendations because the problem was primarily a medical one. I think this is something larger than that. It is really not a medical problem alone. It has to do with how critical this is with regard to the safety of the nation. In January 1950, the NEPA Medical Advisory Board recommended with the exception of one member, not named, that human experimentation be conducted. Dr. Stone then prepared a January 1950 paper on irradiation of human subjects as a medical experiment to be presented to the Department of Defense's Research and Development Board, RDB. The paper explained that as long as they kept doses below 150R, the chances of long-term effects such as leukemia could be entirely ruled out. This assertion would prove to be inaccurate. Subsequent epidemiological research has shown that radiation doses at such levels will produce approximately a seven-fold increase in leukemia risk and a doubling in the risk of many other cancers. Accordingly, the experiments were designed only to analyze the acute effects of radiation. Stone extolled the inestimable value that would come from being able to tell pilots that normal human beings had been voluntarily exposed, without untoward effects, to larger doses than they would receive while carrying out a particular mission. Stone then described a plan of attack in which he would start with 25-hour total body irradiation and then gradually increase the dose to 50-hour, 100-hour, and 150-hour if no immediate effects were seen. The RDB's joint panel on the medical aspects of atomic warfare met in March 1950 and endorsed the NEPA recommendations in Stone's paper. From there, the issue was debated by the RDB's Committee on Medical Sciences, CMS, in May 1950. When one committee member asked whether you can get answers from people subjected to radiation therapy 
usually by reason of neoplastic disorders, as an alternative to experiments on healthy persons, Dr. Stone responded that it might be possible, but only if the patients had radioresistant cancers. You can't pick lymphomas, but rather carcinomous types of metastases. The death of lymphoma cells would release quantities of unknown biologic chemicals and complicate the data collection. The Defense Department shied away from making a final decision, and instead deferred the matter to the AEC on the grounds that NEPA involved civilian as well as military problems. Accordingly, the AEC appointed another panel of experts, who met in Washington, D.C. on December 8, 1950. This ad hoc biological and medical committee, which included a number of participants in the Department of Defense's NEPA Advisory Committee, addressed four questions. First, assume that troops are acutely exposed to penetrating ionizing radiation, gamma rays. At what dosage level will they become ineffective as troops? Second, what dosage will render an air crew unable to complete a mission during a flight of 1 to 3, 4 to 12, and 12 to 48 hours? Third, how often may an aircraft crew accept an exposure of 25R per mission and still be a reasonable risk for subsequent missions? And four, a submarine crew are receiving 25R per mission. How many missions should they be allowed to make? This group of experts concluded, somewhat in contrast to Stone, that the acute effects of doses of 150R or more would pose grave risks of rapidly making troops ineffective as fighting units, but that doses held below 75 rentgens would be unimportant in determining the success of a mission, provided the crew members had not previously received an appreciable amount of radiation. Current reports suggest that tolerance levels for acute effects may be a little higher, and that a dose of 125 rad, approximately 200 rentgens, would cause vomiting in approximately 30% of those exposed within 24 hours, and 200 rad would cause vomiting in 50%. They also said that air and submarine crews could withstand eight missions of 25 rentgens, but that cumulative doses of more than 200 rentgens could substantially reduce the life expectancy of the irradiated individual. The ad hoc committee based these conclusions on the results of extensive animal experiments, the response of patients treated for disease by X-ray and radium, observations on the effect of radiations from the atomic bombs detonated over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and accidental exposures within the Manhattan Project and the Atomic Energy Commission. Accordingly, this committee found that additional human experimentation was not needed to come up with reasonable answers. Dr. Joseph Hamilton, a Manhattan Project physician involved with the plutonium injections, was unable to attend the December 8th meeting and sent a note to Shields Warren explaining his views. For both politic and scientific reasons, I think it would be advantageous to secure what data can be obtained 
by using large monkeys such as chimpanzees, which are somewhat more responsive than the lower animals. Scientifically, the use of such animals bears the disadvantage of the fact that they are considerably smaller than most adult humans, and a critical evaluation of their subjective symptoms is infinitely more difficult. If this is to be done in humans, I feel that those concerned in the Atomic Energy Commission would be subject to considerable criticism, as admittedly this would have a little of the Buchenwald touch. The volunteers should be on a freer basis than inmates of a prison. At this point I haven't any very constructive ideas as to where one would turn for such volunteers should this plan be put into execution. Following the ad hoc committee's conclusion, the AEC's Division of Biology and Medicine, headed by Shields Warren, declared that human experimentation at the present time is not indicated. Moreover, the AEC also stated that such experiments would have serious repercussions from a public relations standpoint, particularly if undertaken by an agency that has to do a portion of its work in secret. If data were needed, the DBM concluded, they could be obtained from the sources cited by the ad hoc committee. The AEC position spelled the end of the DOD's request to do radiation exposure experiments on healthy people, and, roughly coincident with the rejection of this proposal, the DOD contracted to gather data from cancer patients receiving TBI treatments. Post-war TBI effects experimentation Continued reliance on sick patients in place of healthy normals in October 1950, the Air Force entered into a contract with the M.D. Anderson Hospital for Cancer Research in Houston, Texas, to provide the DOD with data obtained from TBI studies on cancer patients. Dr. Shields Warren, who seemed to oppose human experimentation on healthy persons during the NEPA debates, did not appear to have any misgivings about this project. By the end of that decade, the DOD would have several contracts with TBI researchers. When, in 1959, a DOD newsletter announced the renewal of a TBI contract between the Army and the Sloan Kettering Institute in New York, readers were told, It is hoped to make this work by Sloan Kettering, as well as the work of Baylor University College of Medicine and University of Cincinnati, a complete program to provide us with answers on the human whole-body radiation effects. The Navy also conducted TBI-related research in conjunction with patient treatments at the Naval Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. All five of these studies used TBI on many patients with radio-resistant cancers. In contrast, physicians at the AEC's hospital in Oak Ridge operated by the Oak Ridge Institute of Nuclear Studies, ORINS, a university-based consortium, chose to perform TBI only on patients with radiosensitive diseases. In each project, the research institutions accepted the dual purposes of treating the patient's illnesses and collecting and analyzing post-exposure information for the military. 
the DOD-funded experiments would seek to address the three main questions the military wanted answered. How do different doses of radiation influence psychological effects? And, most important, is there a way to find a biological dosimeter to measure how much radiation someone has received? The military was also interested in the diagnosis and treatment of radiation injuries. One reviewer of the initial Cincinnati proposal described the interest in finding a biological dosimeter. If accurate knowledge of the total dose of radiation received could be determined, it would be of inestimable value in case of atomic disaster or nuclear warfare. When the DOD contracted with medical professionals to perform additional research on their patients receiving TBI, it is not clear whether department officials believed that the TBI itself should be covered by the ethical standards being established for human experimentation following the Nuremberg trials. For example, in the NEPA debates, Dr. Robert Stone distinguished experiments which involved healthy persons, such as prisoners, from studies which involved sick patients. Did Stone mean by this that patients receiving treatment did not need to give informed consent, while healthy subjects should? The AEC, for example, took the view that the consent standards should apply to patients. Indeed, as we saw in Chapter 1, AEC General Manager Carol Wilson wrote in a 1947 letter to Robert Stone that the patient must give his complete and informed consent in writing. In 1953, Secretary of Defense Charles Wilson issued a memo establishing the Nuremberg Code as DOD policy. The Wilson memo required that all experimental subjects sign a statement that explained the nature, duration, and purpose of the experiment, the method and means by which it is to be conducted, all inconveniences and hazards reasonably to be expected, and the effects upon his health or person which may possibly come from his participation in the experiment. Unlike the AEC's 1947 pronouncements, the 1953 Wilson memo did not explicitly refer to patients. In addition, if DOD officials believed that the experiments they were sponsoring did not include the administration of the radiation, but only the collection of post-radiation biochemical and psychological data, then they might have interpreted the Wilson memo as applying only to the post-exposure testing, not to the radiation treatments. Although the Wilson memo was classified, its requirements were reiterated by the Surgeon General of the Army in a 1954 document that was transmitted to at least some university contract researchers. The committee found no evidence that this memo was transmitted to the TBI contractors in particular. As discussed in Chapter 1, in 1952, Congress had passed legislation that provided for Defense Department indemnification of private contract researchers in cases where human experiments resulted in injury to subjects. As we have seen, the DOD appears to have linked the requirements of this statute to contractor adherence to the principles stated by the 1954 Army Surgeon General memo, 
including written consent of the subject. For example, in a March 1957 letter to the University of Pittsburgh, which was proposing to use medical student volunteers in a non-radiation experiment, the Army stated that the indemnification provision in the contract was contingent upon your adhering to the following March 1954 Office of the Surgeon General Principles, Policies, and Rules for the use of human volunteers in performing subject medical research contracts. Although this indemnification provision was in the contract of at least one of the five institutions that conducted DOD-sponsored TBI effects research, no available information indicates that its inclusion demanded adherence to the principles set forth by the Surgeon General. Nonetheless, at least three of the institutions had written forms authorizing the radiation treatment procedure, although the forms did not explicitly spell out all of the risks and benefits of the additional experiments. This chapter will now review what is known about the five DOD-sponsored experiments. M.D. Anderson Hospital, Houston, Texas the Air Force's School of Aviation Medicine SAM, contract with M.D. Anderson Hospital for Cancer Research, in association with the University of Texas Medical School, declared that the Air Force was willing to use sick patients for the needed data because human experimentation had been prohibited by the military. The most direct approach to this information would be by human experiment in specifically designed radiation studies. However, for several important reasons, this has been forbidden by top military authority. Since the need is pressing, it would appear mandatory to take advantage of investigation opportunities that exist in certain radiology centers by conducting special examinations and measures of patients who are undergoing radiation treatment for disease. While the flexibility of the experimental design in a radiological clinic will necessarily be limited, the information that may be gained from the studies of patients is considered potentially invaluable. Furthermore, this is currently the sole source of human data. The M.D. Anderson TBI effect study extended from 1951 to 1956 and involved 263 cancer patients. M.D. Anderson had a well-established and ongoing radiation treatment program. The project began at the same time that M.D. Anderson received the first Cobalt-60 teletherapy unit developed by the AEC's Oak Ridge Institute of Nuclear Studies, Orens. The M.D. Anderson study involved three phases, beginning with low doses, 15 to 75 R, and gradually increasing to a maximum of 200 R. The patients in the first group were in such a state that cure, or at least definite palliation, could still be expected from established methods of treatment, in addition to the TBI. Based on these results, the researchers then moved to the second phase, which involved doses ranging from 100 to 200 R. The researchers noted that this greater possible risk necessitated the selection of patients whose disease had advanced, 
to such a state that in general significant benefit could not be expected from conventional procedures other than systemic ones the final phase involved thirty patients all of whom had radio-resistant carcinomas for which cure by conventional means was regarded as completely hopeless these thirty received the highest doses two hundred r and reportedly knew about the advanced state of their disease and the experimental nature and possible risk of the proposed radiotherapy the advisory committee has found no written documentation on what types of risks were described to and understood by these patients beginning in nineteen fifty three patients signed a release form authorizing the physicians to administer x-ray therapy radium and radioactive isotopes which in their judgment they deem necessary or advisable in the diagnosis and treatment of this patient this form was designed apparently to waive legal liability but it did not inform the patient of the risks and benefits of treatment and thus did not meet the other requirements established by the nineteen fifty three wilson memo with respect to the biomedical findings a nineteen fifty four air force review noted that m d anderson had obtained positive preliminary results by finding a biological dosimeter in the blood however one of the reviewers commented that because the patients were not normal people the changes could very well be the effect of the radiation on the abnormal tissue the review noted that an effort earlier in the study to find a marker in patients who received repetitive small doses of radiation similar to what might occur on repeated nipa flights was not successful accordingly the researchers looked for it in patients who received larger doses in single exposures an additional aspect of the m d anderson study was the mental and psychomotor tests that most of the patients were subjected to before and after receiving tbi the patients reportedly participated by their own consent and the judgment of the hospital staff they performed three tests related to the skills required for piloting aircraft but the value of testing the abilities of extremely ill patients as a measure for the performance of highly fit pilots was doubtful to the air force in an attempt to lessen this problem the investigators sought out patients who were in reasonably good physical and mental condition Nonetheless, because patients received TBI radiation doses according to the severity of their disease rather than from an arbitrary experimental protocol, there was difficulty in determining whether the performance changes noted resulted from the underlying disease or the radiation. The M.D. Anderson researchers found medical benefit in three of thirty patients who received 200R. 200 Renchen's whole-body X-irradiation produced a definite transitory amelioration of the disease in three cases, and a questionable improvement in several additional patients. The study concluded that the threshold dose beyond which, in a small percentage of patients, severe complications begin to appear, lies somewhere between 150 and 200 R. 
this conclusion seems to have moved the threshold tolerance level for acute effects slightly higher than the 1950 level. At that time, the AEC's ad hoc NEPA committee had decided that doses above 150R would pose grave risks to the troops. There is very little information concerning subject selection. It appears that many of the patients were indigent members of minorities, although no information is available to determine whether the ratio of minorities differed in relation to the general hospital population. In the context of an Air Force discussion about the costs of the study, one report noted, There is some racial problems involved with colored patients, and the colored outpatient maintenance facilities were located in another part of the city, and therefore it would be difficult to have them transported back and forth to the hospital for testing. Colonel McGraw stated that if we are paying for the maintenance of indigents of the state of Texas with research funds, and the state is also paying for the maintenance of those patients, there could be some difficulty. Another report stated, language barriers both of degree and kind caused problems in the testing of cognitive functions as part of the psychomotor study. Several years later, researchers at the School of Aviation Medicine and the University of Texas issued a report comparing the effects of radiation based on TBI treatment of 11 patients, most of whom had radiosensitive diseases, with the M.D. Anderson group. The researchers used the data to report on the civil defense implications that would result from mass exposures to doses between 150 and 200 R. They concluded that 60% of the people would experience varying degrees of disability from acute radiation sickness that would cause fatigue, nausea, and vomiting for the first 24 hours. End of section 42. Recording by Maria Casper.